0: Socrates, you remember Socrates? Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. That's a startling statement. The unexamined life is not worth living. I don't think he was familiar with the advertisement which said you only go around once in life. And he didn't just say, therefore, hit it with all the gusto you've got. What he was saying was, this life that we get to live is so incredibly precious that you don't run the risk of wasting it. You examine it. You look into it very, very carefully indeed. I don't know if the Apostle Paul was familiar with Socrates and what Socrates had said in this regard. It's quite possible that he was. It's quite possible that he knew that Socrates had said the unexamined life is not worth living. We do know, however, that he would agree with those sentiments. He looked very seriously at the life that he was living. And I want to explore some of the things that he said about his life from the epistle that Paul wrote to the Galatians. And I'm going to read you a few verses from chapter 2 that will form the basis of our study today. This is what Paul wrote in verse 19 of Galatians chapter 2. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, immediately out of those words, you can pick out some very interesting statements. He says, I live for God. That's one thing he said about his life. He said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's another powerful statement. Then he says, the life I now live, I live by faith. Now, it's that one that I want to look into with you. Apostle Paul says, the life I now live, I live by faith. What does that mean? Well, first of all, this idea of the life I now live. We only have one lifetime. And you have no idea how long that will be. And the unexamined life is not worth living. So it behooves you and it behooves me to be thinking very, very seriously about this whole business of life. Now, granted that we only have one lifetime, I think we can all agree also that the life that we live is a life that is characterized by a lifestyle. There are different ways of going about your life. I've spent some time in Chad, in Central Africa. That's a sub Saharan country. Actually, the north of it is right in the middle of the Sahara. I had the chance to spent quite a lot of time with Muslim leaders there. I was invited into their home to eat with them, always using my right hand, sitting cross-legged on the floor with all the food served on the floor. We talked for endless hours about life in the Sahara. There they sat in their long robes with their turbans covering the whole of their heads and half of their faces and just their dark eyes shining out. They explained what it is like to live in a small oasis and to live a basically nomadic experience. It's called a lifestyle. I went straight from there to Mexico. The contrast between the two lifestyles was absolutely breathtaking. For I went down to Mexico to a group of people who advertised themselves as my Mexican congregation. This was a surprise to me. But there is a group of people snowbirds they're called who own condominiums in Manzanillo which is on the Mexican Riviera overlooking the Pacific absolutely gorgeous Chad is not the difference is unbelievable these people are the kind of people who have retired, many taken an early retirement, they've got their homes in the north of North America or Canada, and they have a condominium down in, in Mexico that they use for three months of the year. And they get up in the morning and it's always 80 degrees and the sun is always shining and the big decision that they have to make is, well, what should we do today? Should we play golf or should we play tennis? Or should we play bridge? But let's play. That is a lifestyle. I went from there up to Canada. in Canada, we had an experience with pastors of small churches. Now, the reason there are small churches is they're only small towns. And out in the prairies of Canada, the small towns are getting smaller because the individual farms are being bought up by big conglomerates and the people are leaving the small towns. And there are some pastors there who actually are holding down a full-time job and trying to pastor 25 people. And it's a hard life in the prairies. It's a lifestyle. Now, the thing you do, you see, when you examine your life, is you say, I've only got one lifetime. What am I doing with it? And then you say, and my lifetime is filled with a lifestyle. What kind of lifestyle have I adopted? But then you look behind the lifestyle and you say, what is my lifestyle predicated upon? And you know what you'll discover? You'll discover that the particular lifestyle that you live is based on certain values. Things that are so important, things that are so significant that they become priorities in your life. Things that are so powerful in your thinking that they determine your attitudes and your actions. But the interesting thing about it is this. These things that are behind your actions and your attitudes and your priorities are beliefs. They are things that you believe are significant. Things that you believe are important. Things that you believe are true. If that is true... (laughs) then it means we live one lifetime that is characterized by a lifestyle that is made up of values and decisions which are based on belief. If all that is true, guess what? We're all living by faith. The only question is, in what? We're all living by faith. The question is, in what? You say, well, why in the world do you just say that we're all living by faith? Why, why does it have to be that we live by faith? Well, one, one reason that we have to live by faith is, as Augustine said, we must believe something before we can know anything. Is that a surprise to you? We must believe something before we can know anything. We live in a scientific age. We live in a materialistic age. And materialistic, scientifically minded people usually gag on the idea that we must believe something before we know anything. You say, oh no, we know things on the basis of empirical evidence. Well, even scientists who operate on that basis, if they're strictly honest, will tell you they can't know anything until, in a prior sense, believe something. For instance, scientists believe that sense experience is reliable. If they don't believe that, they won't do science. They believe that knowing is possible. If they don't believe that, they won't do it. They believe that the universe is regular. If they didn't do that, they would have no basis of exploration. They believe that scientists should be honest. Otherwise, how can you go on their findings? Before they know anything, they've got to believe something. So do you and so do I. We are wired for believing. The only way we can begin to grapple with this universe of ours is because we are investably curious. And because we love to explore and we love to find things out, in the end we evaluate all kinds of things, we arrive at conclusions and we say to ourselves, I believe that this is true and I start to build my life on it. We start that when we're little children. Curiosity. Teenagers are full of curiosity. Young teenager said to his father, Dad, how hot's the sun? He said, I don't know, son. He said, How far is it round the sun, Dad? Oh, he said, You got me there. He said, What's the distance between the, from the middle of the sun to the middle of the womb, moon, Dad? Oh, he said, I don't know that, son. He said, Dad, you don't mind me asking these questions, do you? No, son, he said. How are you going to learn if you don't ask questions? <laughs> Curiosity, exploration, finding things out, believing them, they become foundational in our lives. Isaac Newton, sitting minding his own business, apple drops, hit him on the head. He that that's funny. That apple dropped this way. Why didn't it drop upwards? Why didn't it just float off the tree and go around. Well, he wasn't the first person to ask that. In fact, everybody in those days believed that apples dropped down because there's a gravitational pull. They didn't call it gravitational. There was something inside the world that pulled everything down. So he said, if that's true, why doesn't the moon drop then? Curiosity, exploring, trying to figure things out. Coming to some conclusions, building, believing things, and then putting all this together and assuming it is true, you start to craft a life. That's how we're wired up. So on the universal scale, we have no alternative, but on an individual scale, we don't have any alternative either. We ask the questions, who am I? We ask the questions, why am I here? We ask the questions, where am I going? And we cast around for answers. And in the end, we conclude that these answers are true. And they become the basis of our life. We all live by faith. In what? We need to examine that. We need to be clear about the answers. Now, fortunately, Paul has some very, very helpful information for us in this regard. I want to identify three areas in which he is able to talk to us about this. First of all, as far as Paul is concerned, believing or living by faith, it means to have a conviction that certain things are true. The dictionary definition of belief is an acceptance that something is true. That, that's what the dictionary will tell you a belief is, an acceptance that something is true. So Paul will tell us, I have arrived at certain convictions that certain things are true. That's what he means initially by living by faith. Now, all of us have arrived at certain conclusions that certain things are true. That's living by faith. Now, let's explore these things. Notice some of the things that Paul says are foundational, that are fundamental to his lifestyle. He says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 3, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. All right? There's some foundational beliefs. Foundational belief number one, this present age is evil. How about that one? This present age is evil. If you have accepted that that fundamental proposition is true, that will have an incredible impact on your life. Take it a step further. This present age in which I live is evil. There are things in this world that are frightening. There are things in this world that are desperately disconcerting. There are things in this world that are habit-forming. There are things in this world that are addictive. There are things in this world that are destructive. There are things in this world that are desperately dangerous. Anybody have a problem with that? That being the case, I now look at this world in which I live and I say to myself, because this is a dangerous, difficult world, Because there is much that is destructive about this world, I am desperately vulnerable. Not only am I vulnerable, I begin to notice to my deep chagrin in my own life and in my own attitudes that I am capable of evil too. And I even have come to the point on occasion of saying this capability of evil that I find to my deep despair in my own heart is such that sometimes when I try to break it, I can't. And sometimes when I say I'll be done with it, I'm not. And sometimes when I turn over a new leaf, I return the leaf very, very shortly thereafter. And I need help. That's a foundational belief. Now examine your life, because the unexamined life is not worth living. That's a bit um, gloomy, isn't it? But let's go a little bit further. For the Apostle Paul says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. All right, here's the second foundational conviction at which Paul has arrived. Not only that this present age is evil, but that God has taken the initiative to intervene in this present evil age with the express purpose of delivering people from it. Wow! If that is true, that is fundamental. That would be something upon which you begin to build your life. You see, there's some people who um, say, well, uh, if there is a God, he's just sort of an unmoved mover. Or he's just an uncaused cause. Some would go a little bit further and they would say, well, he's the referee in the sky. Others would say, well, no, he's the God of the deists. He sort of set the whole thing up like a big clockwork and he wound it up and it's slowly winding down. But he's gone on to bigger and better things. And other people say, oh, no, no, no. There's a God who is actively involved in this present evil age, desperately concerned about the evil in this age, this corporate evil, this societal evil, and this personal evil, the evil outside that encroaches and the evil insiders that impacts. He is desperately concerned about it and has taken an initiative to rescue people from it. God is on a rescue operation. They go them a step further and they say, and oh, we know how he did it. He did it through his son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we know how His Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, went about rescue men and women from the evil of this present evil age. He did it by giving Himself on the cross and being raised again from the dead. There are fundamental, foundational beliefs. Fundamental, foundational convictions. And I embrace them with all my heart. And I say, I believe this is true. What am I really saying? What I'm saying is that the only hope for human beings who are beginning to discover their vulnerability to evil and their propensity for evil, the only possibility of them being rescued will be by a divine intervention... The only divine intervention available is in the person of Jesus, and Jesus intervened by dying on the cross that our sins might be forgiven and rising again from the dead. And it is in the resurrection and on the resurrection that the whole thing stands or falls. But Paul himself said if Christ is not risen, our faith is invalid. But if Christ is risen, he didn't say this, but if Christ is risen, then by the resurrection, God puts his seal of approval on the claims of Jesus and said, he's right. And he puts his stamp of approval on the death that Jesus accomplished. and he said, that is the way you do it. And in raising Jesus from the dead, he deals with sin and he deals with hell and he deals with the grave and he deals with the devil and he deals with all the things that defeat human beings. And he raises Jesus from the dead and he says, Look at this unique person. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dying on the cross, rising again the third day, Declared with authority to be the son of God. Hear him. Yield your life to his saving, gracious lordship. And begin to discover the divine intervention in your life. Setting you free from the evil that encroaches. Those are fundamental statements. That the Christian accepts as true. And he begins to build his life upon them. It's called living by faith. But you've got to go a step further than just accepting that things are true in an academic sense. We need to do more than give an academic nod. It is terribly possible, of course, simply to give the nod. Some friends of ours in England years ago had a little boy called Malcolm. Malcolm was playing in front of the fire in his English home on Sunday morning. The Anglican service came over the radio. It was a high Anglican service, so they were, they were chanting the Apostles' Creed. The uh, voice came out of the radio of the Anglican vicar. I believe in God. Malcolm, who's playing with his toys, didn't look up. In response to, I believe in God, he went, so do I. and Carried on playing with his toys. Here's the situation. There are many people who in effect would respond to, I believe in God, with so do I. And it doesn't make the slightest difference difference in my life i just go on playing with my toys that's not what paul's talking about that's not living by faith living by faith starts out by arriving at a conclusion that certain things are true and then embracing them on a personal basis look how personal paul gets in all this chapter 1 Verse 15. When God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, etc., et see how personal it is? What the Apostle Paul is doing now is saying, Look, I have examined the truth claims of Jesus. I have examined the truth claims of the gospel. And I have come to the conclusion that they are true. They have become foundational in my life. I am a believer. But now, he says, and these truths I have embraced in a personal way. So I have begun to discover some remarkable personal things. Like God plans for people. God calls people. God invests himself in people. God is interested in the details of their lives. Have you arrived at that point? Have you arrived at the point of saying not only that God does that sort of thing for people, but he has done it for me. When it pleased God who called me, to reveal his son in me, he sent me. But then he goes even further. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he makes this remarkable statement the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Eminently personal. He has embraced these great transcendent truths and he's taken them into his heart and they have become the very stuff of his life. He lives by faith. One of the earliest verses of Scripture I learnt, possibly the earliest, John chapter three, verse 16. "For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish." But have everlasting life. If you haven't learned one verse of Scripture, learn that one, John three sixteen. But you know what they taught me when I was a boy? They taught me don't just say, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him, etc., etc." They said personalize it. God so loved Stuart Briscoe that He gave His only Son that if Stuart Briscoe would believe in him, Stuart would not perish, but would have everlasting life. You see, that's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? It's no more of a stretch than Paul saying, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. You see, it starts out by arriving at a conviction that certain things are true and then taking them into your own heart and beginning to live in... The good of them. But then he goes a step further. He said the son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And now he says I no longer live. Listen to this. But Christ lives in me. That is either the most sublime truth or the most unadulterated nonsense. Son of God loved me, gave himself for me. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Another verse I learned as a boy Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. I was trying to explain this to A congregation in a church in England years ago is a typical English church. Big, cold, empty. Congregation were on the back row. They'd come early to get the best seats. Congregations are the same around the world. They don't want to get too close to the preacher. You might catch something. No amplification equipment in this old English church so I'm having to project they're all sitting on the back row snoozing so I thought I'll make a deliberate mistake and see if anybody notices I wasn't achieving anything anyway so But you see, if you're going to make a deliberate mistake, make sure that you put strong emphasis on it. So this is what I said. Behold, Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I might come in. They snoozed away on the back seat, except for one little boy who was outraged. He jumped up, stood on the seat, shouted out, he didn't. I said, what? He didn't. This woke up his mother. (laughs) She grabbed hold of his jacket and pulled him down. I said, Mrs., leave him alone. He was listening. I said, what did you say, son? He said, Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't what? He didn't say what you said he did. What did I say he did? You said, he said, he might come in. What did he say? He will come in. What's the difference between I will and I might? Well, he said, if I might, I might not. <laughs> I said, go on. He said, if I will, I will. I said, you got it, son, sit down. you got it, son, sit down. Jesus did not say, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice, and open the door, I might come in, because if he'd said that, he might not. He said, I will. Because he said, I will, he will. Do you know what Paul had done? He had come to the point of recognizing that Jesus didn't just die for the sins of the whole world. He died for the sins of Saul the Apostle. And Stuart Briscoe one day discovered that Jesus didn't just die for the sins of the whole world. He died for the sins of Stuart Briscoe. And Stuart Briscoe discovered something else that Paul discovered. That if Paul and Stuart Briscoe and millions of other people around the world would say, I desperately want the living Christ who died for me to come into my life, to change my life from the inside out, if I ask him to do it he will and I asked him years ago and he did and I live by faith on the fact that there are certain truths that are true and I embrace them and I've applied them to my own life and I live in the conscious enjoyment of them. But that's not all. There's a third dimension to this faith. For Now it is necessary for me to make a commitment to live in dependence upon the things that I profess to believe. What does it mean? It means, first of all, that if I really believe deep down in my heart that I was created by God for a purpose and called by Him to Himself, that means... My life has significance. A lot of people feel that their lives are totally insignificant. They're struggling with self-image. Desperate problem with self-worth. They're trying to prove something. Something happened to them in their childhood. They struggled with something in their formative years. And it's left a deep scar on them. And they're driven by all kinds of demons within. How in the world do we get over this sort of thing? The answer is by embracing with all your heart this principle, this truth that you were created by God for an intelligent purpose and called by him into a personal experience of his grace. How can you possibly be more significant than that? Not only that, as you begin to live in the conscious enjoyment of these things, you live with a sense of satisfaction. Why? Because you know that you're loved and you know that you're forgiven. Oh, you have your critics. I have mine. Oh, you will live with people who will knock you down you will have people who will blindside you. You will have disappointments and discouragements in life. But you can live with a deep-rooted sense of satisfaction. Whatever they say about you, and whatever they think about you. Because when they're through, they cannot change two things. You are loved by God and you have been forgiven by grace. Nothing will change that. You live with this deep-rooted sense of significance and you live with this unassailable sense of satisfaction. And on top of that, you go around through life with a feeling of sufficiency. You know why? Because you know that you are indwelt by the risen Christ and empowered by his spirit put all this together. You get up in the morning and you say, gee, I don't know what's going to happen today, but I know it'll be significant. I know it will be significant. I know that in Christ I'm sufficient for it. And I know that at the end of the day I'll have this deep-rooted sense of satisfaction that whatever happened, God's Love has not changed. And I'm going to live by faith in these things. All right. So you've only got one lifetime. You've already established a lifestyle. Behind the lifestyle are certain philosophies, certain values, certain priorities certain things that you have accepted as true, may I respectfully suggest you examine them. Because the unexamined life is not worth living. Let's pray. Oh God, we bow before you. And we acknowledge that this universe is just a bit too big for us. And there are things that we just have to take by faith. And when we look inside us, there are things about the intricacies and the complexities of life that are too much for us. We don't even know who we are or why we're here or where we're going or what we're doing. What's going to happen to us? And we're locked in to having to live by faith. So we're all living by faith in something. We're all dependent upon something. The question is what? And you've invited us once again to examine this wonderful message that you are in the business of delivering people from this present evil age. That you're doing it through your son, Jesus who died on the cross rose again that he wants in the power of his resurrection to come into our lives and begin to give us that inner sense of sufficiency and significance and satisfaction that allows us to live wisely and well in this present evil age and what you're waiting for is for us to say that's what I want That's the way I want to live. And some of us look back over many, many years to initial decisions that we made with you. And we examine our lives and see how effectively we're living by faith. And some of us right now want to say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Thank you for hearing our prayers, for reading our hearts, and for responding in grace. For we pray in Jesus' name.